0: Please turn your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 11. We'll be reading from verse 11 through verse 26 today. That is Mark 8, 11 through 26. A passage found under the translator heading The Pharisees Demand a Sign. Si español, sus Biblias al Evangelio de Marcos, capítulo versículo 11 a La buscan señal. Picking up where we left off in Mark chapter 8, we are approaching the hinge of the gospel of Mark, as it were. The moment in the narrative dedicated to answering the burning question that we've been asking all series long, who is Jesus? The moment in which the curtain is thrown back and the clearest sight of Christ so far is revealed as Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ. And the Lord is transfigured in radiant glory. On our journey to the dead center of the narrative, the bridge that connects the first half of the gospel to this crucial moment that lies before us uh, is upon us today. And this morning, that brilliant vision to come, which we'll get to next week, is preceded by three scenes having to do with blindness. Three stories about spiritual sight, which reflect where we've been so far in Mark. That is, really, no one fully understands who Jesus is as of yet. But also stories which anticipate where we're going. That there will, in fact, be an increasing clarity on who Jesus is coming just around the corner in the Gospel of Mark. The central question the Gospel of Mark has been written to answer is, again, yes, who is Jesus? And it's a question that both the opponents and supporters of Jesus have been struggling to answer through the first half of the Gospel. And if anything has been made clear so far in Mark, it's that the human characters in Mark remain unclear on just who Jesus is. And now, this is not because of any failure on Jesus' part to disclose himself, to do the very works of God or to take us into the depths of his own heart as he relates to the sinners that he came to save. No, it's not Christ's fault, but it's because mankind, we, do not possess a perfect prescription, as it were, when it comes to perceiving things, especially the most important of things, as they really are. The lack of clarity um, that the human actors possess is not a fault in the revelation of Christ in the gospel, but it's because of a fault in their own vision. And this fault extends to us as well. But the good news this morning is that Christ, he has grace enough to correct their vision as well as our own. So, without any further ado, let's read God's word together and pray and ask for God's help. Beginning in verse 11, we'll read through the end of this section in verse 26. Mark writes that the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Then Jesus laid his hands on him again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. These are God's own words. Let's pray and ask for God's help. Lord, this morning we come with gratitude to you that in your grace you've given us the revelation of your word you've given us the revelation of your son and you invite us today to hear from you that we might see you and be changed by you lord i pray that you would send your spirit even now to help us to open the eyes of our hearts to give us ears to hear to cause the proclamation of this word to go forth in boldness and clarity And with joy, we ask all of us, Lord, that you would help us to see Christ through the pages of Scripture for the sake of his glory and for the good of our souls. Amen. Amen. What is 2023? What will this new year mean for you? A year of new beginnings, breaking away from the bad in 2022 starting fresh, starting over, starting something like a new goal or pursuit? Will it be a year of novelties with fresh fun and adventures just around the corner, right before you? Is that what you're looking ahead to? A year which we fear, on the other hand, though, might be filled with all kinds of unexpected troubles. A new year with new problems. That might be what you're facing down This morning, a year maybe which presents no prospect to you right now, at least, of being any better or any worse than 2022, different number, same day, things will probably be just like they've been, and all the New Year's sentiment aside, it'll probably be another year of the same old thing. That might be your expectation, or perhaps this could be another year you're fearing without having this or, or that desire of your heart. Bracing, maybe right now, for disappointment. Trying not to be too hopeful as you enter into this new time. Maybe experiencing some cynicism about God's promises to you. Fearful that another year will come and go, and maybe no spouse will be found. No home will be purchased. No move will be made. No new job will come. No alleviation of a particularly difficult situation that you're in will come. And so on. You could be looking forward with fear, bracing for disappointment. And all the things that this new year might be, from novelties to new beginnings to something that we dread, this morning I submit to you that for the Christian, The new year is a series of opportunities, month by month, day by day, moment by moment, to behold Christ. 365 days filled with every providential detail the Lord himself has designed to set our sights on his Son. A new year that we might see Christ. And, church, very simply put, this morning, the thesis of this message, the direction of this sermon, is that we need, as a church, as believers, to see Jesus in 2023. That's it. For the sake of God's glory and for the good of our souls, we need to see Jesus more and more clearly in 2023. If you're going to set a New Year's resolution, if that's something that you do, <laughs> this would be it in 2023, if I do nothing else, I aspire, I strive, I pray by the grace of God that I might see Jesus more and more clearly. I mean, consider, how clearly do you like to see (laughs) in your daily life, right? As you live your life day in and day out, it's tremendously important that you see everything as as clearly as you can 24-7. It would be maybe dangerous <laughs> otherwise, right? It would not be good for us to go around and settle for less than the utmost clarity that we might strive for as we go about our life. It would be hard to get to and from to work. It would be hard to make dinner. It would be hard to do any number of things. It would be dangerous. It would be disastrous. And not only would it be potentially dangerous or disastrous, but if we went day by day seeing less than clear, we'd also be missing out on, on beauty, on joyful things, on things that we might celebrate if we saw them as they were. To see clearly will make quite a difference, one way or the other, in how we experience and receive all the things that are to come in our day-to-day lives through the year. And if we consider how clearly we would like to see in our daily life, how much more than, how much more clearly would you want to see the very Lord of life? How much more important is it that we see Jesus as we face all the varied aspects of our lives? As we enter into a new year in which we gaze upon celebration and success, as we encounter temptations and trials, suffering and loss, the imperfection that is in us and around us, and even all the Mundane and ordinary realities of the lives we live. This morning, I submit to you that it's critically important that we see Jesus as clearly as we can, in order that we might faithfully respond to all these things. In two thousand twenty-three, it's critical that we fix our eyes on the same Christ this year that we did last year. In church. Even as we say the same Christ, and we head into a new year with that same old Savior, (laughs) that same Christ is one who is infinite and eternal, unparalleled and unchanging, never lessening in his blessed perfection, able by us to be truly known, but never to be fully or exhaustively known, the Christ who is and remains and ever will be an inexhaustible reservoir of grace. An unending storehouse of treasures for us to delight in, to partake in, to receive the riches thereof. One whom we behold that, actually wonderfully, will never get to the bottom of in the most blessed sort of way. As a new year dawns, we need to set our sights on this same old, but never really growing old to us, Christ. We need to see him. It says C.S. Lewis once talked about Christianity. He said, it's like the rising of the sun, right? By it, I see all other things. So too, in this case, is Christ. That as we look toward a new year, we would see everything by the light that comes from him so that we would respond with faithfulness, so that we would rejoice even in tribulation, so that we would not grow conceited in success and victory, so that we might, in every moment and in every day, behold the God of our salvation for the sake of his glory, for the good of our souls, for the good of our families, for the prosperity of our church. We need to see Jesus and thereby see everything else that comes this year the right way, clearly, and enable ourselves to faithfully respond. And church, it's my my burden for us this morning that we would be freshly excited, that as we look to the God revealed in Jesus Christ, of whom Psalm 145.3 speaks and says, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. That we would be convinced that we will always find something to see. Always find something relevant in who Jesus is and what he has done that makes a difference in our lives each and every day as we see ourselves As we see everything around us and as we relate to the world and to the people and to the situations that come, we need to see Jesus. What better thing could we do? What better goal or resolution could we set to equip us and prepare us for whatever lies ahead of us in the new year? And this morning, in the time that we have together, we're going to look at three scenes in the Gospel of Mark which have to do with seeing and sight and, more negatively, blindness. And in these three scenes, we see um, kind of a diagnosis of what it is that impedes or blurs or obscures our vision of Christ laid out before us. And then we also see the grace, the power, the willingness, the eagerness of Jesus to come to people like us and touch us on the eyes that we might see him more and more clearly for the good of our souls and for the glory of his name. So before us, we have three scenes, which amount to three points, and we'll take them all uh, as they come. The first point is this. Our, Our story teaches us that unbelief is blinding. This comes from verses 11 through 13. As we're striving to see Jesus more clearly in 2023, we need to see in this first story that unbelief is what is blinding. The Pharisees cannot see Jesus because they are blinded by unbelief. And as we look in the text, Christ has just returned from a Gentile area in which he has done miracles among the Gentiles. He has just finished feeding the 4,000 and has now returned across the sea yet again to Jewish territory. And as he enters into Jewish territory, he is freshly confronted by Jewish opponents. These Pharisees, when we last saw in chapter 7, who were arguing with Jesus about the finer points of the law and what it is that defiles, they come to Christ, and they came with a purpose. They come uh, with an intention. They have a question to ask of him. They have a request of him, but we can see that they're not really uh, super sincere in the, in the intention the aim of this. They come to him, it says, and began to argue with him seeking a sign from heaven that they might believe? <laughs> no, to test him. These Jews come to Jesus, and they demand a sign from heaven in order to test him. So they come to him, not in good faith, not being open to believing in Jesus, but just struggling with a particular kind of doubt, but they come to argue, in the underlying connotations of the Greek terms, to, to manipulate, to control Jesus to their own, ends they want an indisputable sign from heaven that he is the long-awaited messiah that he is who he is claiming to be like some sort of cosmic event some sort of thunder and lightning and fire think of like mount sinai god speaking from the clouds, something that nobody can argue with no one can deny and they come to him with a posture that essentially says to jesus hey jesus prove yourself to us and in doing so they're probably angling at one or, or both of these things The first would be that they come to Jesus to test him so that he will fail. They don't actually want him to pass the test. They want to ask him for a sign from heaven that he will not perform so that they can say, look at that, we're off the hook. He came claiming that he was bringing the kingdom. He came calling me to repent of my sin and to believe in him. He's welcoming Gentiles and sinners. I don't want anything to do with that, Jesus. I want a better Messiah, a different Messiah, the Messiah that I have, you know, uh, put together in my own mind and my own expectation according to my image. If Jesus doesn't do the sign, guys, we're off the hook. We don't have to accept him. We don't have to believe. So they come and asking for a sign, hope that he won't do it. However, he might. <laughs> so, number two, I think that they could also be angling for in the unbelief of their hearts a clear and indisputable sign proving Christ's messianic identity without a doubt so as to kind of remove their need for actually putting faith in him. They want it to be so clear, of the, in other words, that it's no longer a matter to them of placing their trust in Jesus, but just a brute fact that they acknowledge he is Messiah. Like the grass being green and the sky being blue, Jesus is just Messiah. Give us a sign that will just make it clear. It's not really a matter of active faith that we have that these things are so. They just are. Grass is green. Sky is blue. And so we relate to these things without placing any trust or confidence in them. In this case, the upshot of some sort of sign declaring Christ to be the Messiah would be to exclude these Pharisees' personal faith in him, which would mean probably that they would want him to be the kind of Messiah that would do the kind of work they'd like him to do, conquer the Romans without making them uncomfortable, calling them to repentance, making a claim upon them that goes further than what they would hope to see. In either case, with whatever angle these Pharisees might have on, these, on this request for a sign, they are trying to protect or to shield themselves from the full implications of the claims of Christ. They want him to prove himself. They want to manipulate him. They want him to be what they want him to be. And when he doesn't fit their mold, they say, Oh, very good. Now we're exempt. We're off the hook. We don't have to place our trust in him. And Jesus, he, he knows this. He knows that they, come to the, that they come to him and they say, if anything, maybe we want to see his work, right? Defeat the Romans. But we don't really want him. Christ knows this. He knows what's in their hearts, and this is why he responds the way he does in verses 12 and following. He's witnessed these men coming to him in this way, actively, you know, putting a blindfold on themselves, as it were, as they approach Christ, so as to not see him. And grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he says, why does this generation, that is, in contrast to those who have so far received Jesus, this is a sort of technical term to represent, as we saw earlier in Mark, those who are outside, right? There's the insiders and the outsiders. This generation are those outside the kingdom that Christ has come to bring. Jesus says, why does this generation seek a sign? If this is what's in your hearts and you don't want to believe, I say to you, because of this, no sign will be given to this generation. Those who have seen and heard and witnessed the Messiah in their midst yet still not to believe, they will not receive any more signs. They will not bear witness to any more of Christ's mighty works. (laughs) Jesus is really saying to them, really guys? You're asking me for a sign? (laughs) You don't really want to believe. You refuse to have faith. So why would I give you a sign? Your problem is not a lack of evidence at this point. It's a lack of faith. And, in the, and with that, making that statement in verse 12, it says in verse 13 that he left them. He got into the boat again, and he went to the other side. And in the progression of the narrative, at this point, scholar R.T. France says that those who have not yet been convinced of his message— being these Pharisees here, will not now be offered any further incentive to believe. Jesus has made his appeal to them, and he's now through with his attempts to win them. They have, in other words, missed their opportunity. Through their own unbelief, their willing blindfolding of themselves to the truth of who Jesus is, the opportunity has come, and the opportunity has gone. There was the Messiah. Consider this in their midst, the one who is able to save to the uttermost, all who draw near to God through him, the savior of their souls. And they willingly looked away. They chose not to see him, not to receive him. And in in the very sobering sort of warning that comes to us and comes to those who have not yet believed, Jesus departs. The opportunity comes and it goes. And this morning, if you've never believed in Jesus, would you receive this as a merciful yet sobering warning. They beheld Jesus, but they persisted so much in their unbelief that their spiritual sight grew worse and worse, progressing to the point where they were in danger now of becoming totally and incurably blind and remaining in that state. If if you're here today and you've heard the gospel of Jesus time after time, if you've beheld him in some way, but turned away, If you've considered his claims but decided to hold off on repenting of your sin and believing in him, I urge you to learn the lesson of the Pharisees to not miss your opportunity to believe like they did. Don't remain cynical about the claims of Christ like they chose they chose to do. Don't delay your repentance to some later time. Don't harden your heart in unbelief today, because it will grow even harder. Tomorrow. The more you delay, the more dim your spiritual sight will grow. The longer you live in the dark, the more your eyes will grow accustomed to the dark, and less you'll be able to tolerate his light. If you hear these words today and you have beheld Christ, you've heard the gospel, you've come and gathered with the church, but you've still yet to trust him, trust him. Believe today. And don't miss the opportunity to receive his salvation. Don't trifle around with his claims to be the Messiah. Don't play the devil's advocate endlessly and play intellectual games and do gymnastics to try to exempt yourself like the Pharisees were doing. And keep yourself from coming face to face with the only one who can save your soul. Believe today. And don't miss the opportunity. And to the believer, though this isn't where we find ourselves in this story, we can still see in our own hearts a little bit of that Pharisaic attitude, coming to Christ and saying, prove yourself. And we can ask ourselves, in what sort of ways are we prone to ask Jesus to prove himself to us? What does it look like for us, for you, when you look to him, but you don't really want to see Jesus, right? You want his work, but you don't really want him. When you approach him with a view toward controlling or manipulating him, you know, in a way that would keep him at arm's length so as to maintain your comfort and not be too challenged by his claims upon your life. Ask yourself, as a believer, are there any claims of Christ that you find yourself to be kind of toying with, like the Pharisees were here? Delaying a response of obedience to, knowing that Christ commands your faithfulness in a particular area of your life, but rationalizing it to yourself and saying, well, It can't really be that serious. It's just a small thing that I am holding back on giving to him, that I'm holding back on repenting of, that I'm holding back on obeying him in full. Thinking to yourself, you know, if I should stop doing this, right, there would surely be some sort of indisputable sign from God that I shouldn't keep doing this, right? The consequences would go so bad, things would go so disastrously, that I would be clear I should stop this. Or maybe there'd be some sort of word or direct message right to me that I couldn't mistake. Then I would would quit this or that. And to us as Christians, Christ has given his word. And every letter that's in his word that he commands us to receive is given to us for our good that we might experience the utmost of joy in a life lived to the glory of God, church. Jesus does not need, in other words, to give you more signs than he has given to us to occasion our repentance or to jumpstart our obedience. His cross, upon which he died for your every sin, is a sign enough that none of us should ever continue in any sin. Jesus didn't toy around with God's commands, but he fulfilled them for us. We should respond with an eager attitude to be faithful as well. The Pharisees, they came to Christ, putting him to the test, hoping he would fail. And he would not give them a sign because they did not want to believe. And even us who do believe, even Christians, though we have been saved from that blindness, can still find ourselves uh, not in that terminal sort of condition like the Pharisees were in, but actually still finding ourselves to be blinded as well. And this leads us to our second point. Even believers can be blinded. The Pharisees blinded themselves so much so that they couldn't see, but even for us as believers, we can still be blinded. This comes up in the second scene in Mark verses 14 through 21. The Pharisees could not see Jesus because of their unbelief. And in this scene, the disciples, they should see Jesus, but they find their vision is obscured by the lingering presence of unbelief. Their hearts. And so as Jesus and his disciples they embark in verse 14 on another uh, trip across the sea, they get back into the boat, they take their leave of the Pharisees. The disciples they realize something kind of important. That they'd forgotten to bring bread on their journey. And if they learn anything about this point now, Jesus crosses the sea this way and that way and they never really know how long it's going to be or where they're going or where it's headed. They're just following along with him and they get back into the boat in which they've already experienced multiple storms and they look down (laughs) and they realize we have one loaf of bread for 13 guys. (laughs) And this gives them cause for concern and they're beginning to think, what are we going to do about this situation? And it seems that Jesus noticed that the disciples were dwelling upon this circumstance, fixing their eyes upon what they lacked. And so in verse 15, he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. He tells them to be on the lookout so that they don't come under the influence of the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. And the Pharisees and Herod have hardly anything in common. Their approach to the culture of the day, to the Roman occupation, to the theology and worldview couldn't be more opposed. But what does unite them is one thing, and it's their rejection of Jesus. Jesus says, be on the lookout that the leaven, that is the ingredient in, in bread that would cause the dough to rise when it was baking, that was used in the ancient world uh, metaphorically, right? Right? because it's so influential. Just a little bit of leaven could cause the whole loaf of bread to rise. Just a little bit could influence the whole thing. It was used as a symbol, a metaphor for corruption. Just a little bit of that leaven could have a corrupting influence upon the whole. We say things stay like, you know, um, one bad apple spoils the whole bunch. Same kind of idea. Just a little bit could really wreak havoc. And so Christ sees the disciples Fixating upon their lack, fixating upon this circumstance, he says, hey, beware that the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod doesn't take root in your hearts, and that leaven is unbelief. In other words, he says, do not allow yourself to become blinded, because unbelief takes a root in your heart that you don't check, and it grows, and it festers, and it becomes something that obscures your vision of who I am. Yet, even as Jesus gives that warning, the disciples remain fixed upon the practical challenge before them. Verse 16 indicates that, if anything, they hear Christ's warning and brush it off, because they carry on in a discussion over the reality of their breadlessness. Verse 16 says that after hearing this warning, they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. So they say, yeah, sure, Jesus, we got it. We're on the lookout but man, we still have no bread. (laughs) They're probably saying things to each other. Like, who forgot to make a run to the store? (laughs) How can we possibly ration this one loaf for all us guys? What are we going to do? How can we fix this situation? They're fixed on the problem and fixed upon what they themselves might do to solve it. And this is the great irony of the scene, isn't it? (laughs) That faced with their lack of bread... Their first reflex is not to turn their eyes to Jesus, who has just provided bread to the thousands. They fixate on their lack of bread and seemingly forget the bread maker. Jesus, the bread of life himself, is in the boat with them. (laughs) Unless we think we're better than these disciples, that we wouldn't do the same thing. I I submit that we would probably be doing just the same thing. And we frequently do the same thing in our own lives. Uh, Pastor, Sovereign Grace Pastor John Payne says this. He says that normal people, people like you and I, we're prone to hang on to the leaven of unbelief. We're prone, like the disciples, to fixate upon the circumstance, upon the practical, upon what I might do to remedy this situation, this problem, and to turn away from the Jesus who was present with us. And this is why Jesus responds to them and says, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? He's using the language of Mark chapter 4, which was first applied to outsiders. And in effect, he's saying, you guys, you're acting like outsiders. You've seen me, but you haven't really seen me. You don't yet understand just who I am and what they're failing to understand as they look upon the solitary loaf of bread is the two miracles that have already taken place and we've recounted these already the two miracles in which 5000 first 4000 second the first group was fed with 12 baskets left over representing the fullness of the Jewish people the second group was fed with 7 baskets left over representing the fullness of the gentiles christ has proven that he has it in himself to satisfy the nations, all who come to him seeking the nourishment that only he can provide. He's shown his power, he's shown his eagerness and willingness to satisfy the hungry soul. And yet, having beheld the mighty works of Jesus, the disciples are missing out on the person of Christ who's sitting before them. They are not connecting his work to his person and failing to see and connect the dots that the same Jesus who would provide for the thousands could also care for the twelve. He could also care for me. He could provide for me because he loves me and cares for me and has chosen to be present with me in ways big and ways small. They see Jesus, but they don't see Jesus because they're missing that connection between his person and his work. And this is why Jesus asked to them, do you not yet understand? You've seen my work. Do you still not grasp my person And the question for us, reflecting on this scene, is to ask ourselves, like the disciples, where we are prone to allow the leaven of unbelief to rise up in our own hearts, where we might have a disconnect in our thinking between the person of Jesus who is with us and the work of Christ which has been done for us, where do we fail to bridge the gap there? Where are we missing or, or neglecting an aspect of who Jesus is or or what he's done. And where are we finding ourselves prone to, given the situation, our eyes don't go to Christ, but they look down. And what right now is that loaf of bread in your hands, that one loaf that you're going, what do I do? How do I fix this? What am I going to do to solve my problems, to remedy this situation? Where are you finding your eyes drawn away from Christ and toward yourself? Because this is what allows that leaven of unbelief to to ferment and to foster and to rise and to become something that influences and corrupts the whole loaf, that we look away from Jesus and look to ourselves and find our eyes being blurred uh, to a vision of him, find our our sense of his presence with us becoming dull because we're so focused upon ourselves. Ask yourself, where do your eyes of faith require the the laser surgery (laughs) of the gospel, as it were? Where do we need to make connections Where is the story of Jesus failing to change or affect your own story? Where is who he is failing to affect how you see yourself, how you see the world around you, how you see the people and circumstances of your life? Is your, like the disciples, initial response to the challenges and struggles that you face, one that is, again, reflexively practical? The, how do I fix this? response. What do I do? Seeing the new thing in front of me and looking to myself. And we know that the the, the condition that we all find ourselves apart from Christ, the fallen condition of man, it leaves us curved in on ourselves, as it were. We're bent away from God and toward ourselves. By nature, out of the box, we look to find wisdom and satisfaction and salvation within. We think we are right in our own eyes, don't we? (laughs) <laughs> we uh, have desires that ultimately point beyond us and our ability and even this world that we attempt to try to satisfy with the things of this world and satisfy in ourselves. We are reflexively seeking to solve all of our problems from the greatest to the least by beginning with the question, what can I do about this? Our natural bent is to look to ourselves to face or fix what's in front of us. Directing our gaze away from and developing a reflex, which would turn our dependence um, from ourselves to another. Um, This sort of reflex to develop that, that requires a transforming and a redeeming of our nature, of who we are. And friends, even as the gospel does redeem our nature, thank God, and incline us to look beyond ourselves to God's help, the muscle memory of that old nature, it can be persistent, can it? We can find ourselves drawn back in on ourselves, bending us back in an instant to look to ourselves when we should be looking to Christ. And as the disciples, they, they exemplify this reality. Our own, our own experience, it attests to this reality as well, that even in the believer, the proneness to shift our gaze and with it our trust from Christ to ourselves, it can come about at a moment's notice though we, like the disciples, should see Jesus as the one to whom we always can and should and must turn, the one capable of meeting our every need, who never fails to be relevant to the challenges that we're facing, we can experience moments of blindness. And blind spots are present in us um, that we must beware the leaven of unbelief rising up in our hearts obscuring our sight of Christ and eroding the faith that we have in him. Instead of fixing your eyes on Christ, right now do you find yourself prone to focus on your failures like the disciples remain fixed on that solitary loaf and you're dwelling there? Are you looking ahead to what 2023 might bring and focusing on the problems of the future and not on the Lord of your future? Are you seeing life through an anxious lens, which frequently has you looking and worrying and thinking about what's about to go wrong, not what is God doing graciously in my life right now? Listen, there are endless ways we could look to ourselves and what we can do and not to Christ. And to this, Jesus says to us along with his disciples, you have to see who I am. Because the one who fed the thousands and did mighty works, he's in the boat with them. And he's present with us as well. And we need to see him. We need to turn to him and to acknowledge him. And the good news for us is that even as we struggle with that proneness to turn in on ourselves, even as we can blind ourselves through shifting our gaze away from Christ, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is faithful. And he is eager and he is willing time and time again to restore our spiritual sight. And this brings us to our final point this morning. Point number three that by grace, Christ, uh, excuse me, by grace will behold Christ better and better. By grace will behold Christ better and better. This is verses 22 through 26. And in this final scene, we encounter a miracle that functions like a parable as well. In this scene, it marks the start of the second act. Of Mark's gospel, as it were, as they leave Galilee behind, begin to journey to Jerusalem, and this act two of Mark is actually bookended, is framed by two accounts of blind men being healed, suggesting that in this portion of the narrative there will be increasing clarity on who Jesus is and what he has come to do. Shifting from this scene on to what we'll see next week in that confession and transfiguration, act two is about the disciples understanding more and more progressively gradually, as they go on this journey with Jesus, just who he is and what he's come to do for them. And the first of these two healings that bookends this act, number two, is before us here. As Jesus and the disciples exit the boat, they enter into the city of Bethsaida, and a group of men come and find Jesus and beg him, just like Jairus begged him, just like the Syrophoenician woman begged him earnestly, with trust that Christ really could and really would do this, They beg him to heal their blind friend. In verse 22, they ask Jesus to lay his healing hand upon the blind man. They believe Jesus can do this work, and as the scene unfolds in the succeeding verses, their faith, pun intended, turns to sight. They see see Jesus do this thing. And so verse 23, we read that, He, Jesus, took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. He is wanting to be discreet here. He's wanting to not cause a big stir as healing a blind man in the public would because he doesn't want people to have only a partial vision of who he is. He wants people to see him clearly and fully and truly, ultimately, in the light of the cross and the light of the empty tomb, which would illuminate just who Jesus is and what he's come to do. This is why it also says in verse 26 that after this healing occurred, he said to the man, don't even enter the village. I'm going to do this thing for you, but I don't want people to have a impartial idea, or excuse me, a partial idea of who I am. So let's keep this on the down low. He takes him out of the village, and when he had spit on his eyes, just as he did back in chapter seven, when he healed the deaf man and put the spit on his hand and touched his tongue, he laid his hands on him. He's personally engaging with the affected area and this blind man consider this he hasn't seen jesus he's heard of him he trusts in him and now jesus is grabbing him and leading him in his blindness by the hand and then all of a sudden he's feeling the sensation of jesus touching his eyeball (laughs) with a hand covered in saliva and jesus is getting in there he's engaging this man and this man is feeling christ personally caring for and alleviating his blindness and what's interesting about this scene However, is that Jesus does this, and it says in verse 24, in response to Christ's question, So can you see now? He says, I see people, but they look like what? Like trees walking. And this isn't Lord of the Rings, so this is not good. We haven't completed the job yet. Jesus does not heal him on the first try. And so then it says that again, he laid his hands on his eyes, and at that time, gradually, in this second phase and part, His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And so the question is, why did it take Jesus two tries? Was he unable? I don't think so. Up to this point, he's cast out every demon, he's healed every sickness, he's calmed the storms with just a word. It wouldn't seem that he's unable to do this thing in one shot. But I think there's something for us to see in this successive healing, in this progression of clearer and growing in clarity. First, we see in the narrative, the way it functions as this bridge that was leading us toward what happens next week, that this excessive healing of this blind man, it forms a model, a paradigm for the rest of the book, in that the disciples who are right now, we've seen in the previous story, are experiencing still some spiritual blindness. They will, like this man, grow from blindness to clarity. They will see Jesus as he is, because in the very next scene, Peter will say what? You are the Christ. And then three of them will behold Jesus transfigured in his glory. The narrative is moving forward so that the disciples, who right now are struggling to see Jesus as he is, they will, in fact, come to have greater clarity. And so it's a model for them. But I would also suggest that it's a model for us in our Christian life. Because though, when we are saved, the lights come on, and the glory of, of God and the gospel, and the face of Jesus Christ, it shines into the darkness of our hearts like in Genesis 1, where God says, let there be light, and we see. Paul still says what in 1 Corinthians 13? That we see now in a mirror dimly. We have true sight. Our eyes have been opened to who Jesus is, yet in our lingering sin, the presence of unbelief that is in and around us, we can still progress and grow and move forward in our vision of Christ. And really the whole Christian life is marked Typically, right? Even though, yes, we're saved in a moment, we are given the gift of faith, the eyes of our hearts are opened to Christ, typically, day to day, we're not walking from breakthrough to breakthrough, right? Big, explosive unveiling to big, explosive unveiling. But the Christian life is is a gradual sort of process, isn't it? Of growing, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, of being transformed by one degree of glory to the next as we behold Jesus. And in this man being healed successively and progressively, we see not only the future of the disciples, but we see how Christ aims to work in our lives, that he is eager, that he is willing to take us by the hand and lead us in growing clarity day after day, one degree of glory to the next, as we are increasingly seeing and apprehending and comprehending and becoming conformed to to who he is. He has grace for us in that. He does not aim to leave us with a blurry prescription <laughs> but he has grace enough to meet us where we are deficient in our sight where we are failing to apply the gospel where we don't yet see the fullness and richness of who he is and he comes to us that we would see him and in beholding him set our eyes upon something that we'll never see to the bottom of never exhaust never go oh that's it i've seen all of jesus there is to see but now and forever we'll be journeying and progressing along with the disciples and growing clarity of just who Jesus is and what he's come to do, and living in the appreciation and the enjoyment of all that that means for us. Until the point where, as it says in 1 John chapter 3, we behold him just as he is, and are made like him, and forever live with God, as we sang this morning, in the presence of him in whom there's fullness of joy forevermore, seeing him and beholding him just as he really is. This is the good news of the gospel for us (laughs) who struggle with spiritual cataracts and blurriness and averting our gaze from Christ. Christ has come and he is patient and willing and able to direct our focus back to him. That we, with the blind man, might see everything clearly in his light. And so quickly, as we respond to this word, a few applications for us to to take home to apply this and to actualize our uh, resolution This year, we ought to strive to see Jesus more clearly in 2023, and we ought to embark upon that resolution and setting that goal with the faith that He is willing and able to grant us that sight for the glory that we would see in Him for the good and joy of our souls. And, church, if we don't make any other New Year's resolutions this year, let's make this one it (laughs) to combat the leaven of unbelief that rises up in our hearts and to grow in beholding Jesus just as he is, setting his gospel daily before our eyes, gazing upon his glorious person, meditating upon his perfect work. Let's strive to do this, even if it's the humble goal of just a little bit more, just a little bit better. Each and every day, I long to see Jesus. Three ways we can do this. One, beholding Christ in his word. And again, this is by no means a novel New Year's Day application, but what did you expect? Beholding Christ in his word, if we want to see Christ in his fullness, we need to begin and persist in beholding him in the scriptures. There are many screens and lights and lingering distractions that are out there in the world which dull our eyes, but fixing them upon the words of scripture will sharpen our sight. And so, do you have a Bible reading plan for 2023? There's many out there, and if you need one or would like a suggestion or recommendation, we'd be happy to provide you with one. But ultimately, it's not about how much you read, how many times you read the Bible back and forth, how many chapters you read a day. It's really all about fixing your eyes upon Christ. And whether that is two chapters or two verses, striving daily to behold Jesus ought to be the goal we have. And he's given us his word that we might do that. Second, we need to... Look to Christ before we look to ourselves and apply that in every situation as often as we can in this new year. Just like the disciples shouldn't have fixed their eyes upon that one loaf of bread, we need to realize that 2023 doesn't rise or fall with us. As we've been saying throughout our series in the Gospel of Mark, the first and most important question is, who is Jesus? And so whatever comes our way, whatever situation we're in, whatever struggle we face this year as you look down and realize you've forgotten the bread? Would your first response not be, what can I do to fix this? Or how can I avoid this circumstance? But who is Jesus? And how is he using this right now to address my heart, to do his work in me? And that leads us finally to the third application, which is asking others to shine a light into our blind spots. When what I mean by that is, speaking of our hearts, this year, let's strive to use our small groups, use our men's and women's meetings, use our interpersonal ministry and our relationships within our church to shed light on our blind spots and the leaven of unbelief in our hearts and not just the circumstantial challenges that we face. As we share what's going on with us, as we gather in these meetings, in these groups, Let's seek to do our utmost, to expose the leaven of unbelief in our own hearts so that our brothers and sisters can help us by applying the gospel to it, that we would see Jesus better. Let's come together, not just to all sit around in a circle and fix our eyes on the loaf of bread in the middle, but to fix our eyes upon Christ, who is the bread of life. Let's use those opportunities to not stay on the surface, not speak to the circumstance, not just talk again and again about the bread Though that is true, though that is there, let's talk about our hearts. And in so doing, trust that Christ will use that courage, that vulnerability, and those moments of trying to shed light upon the blind spots in the darkness to meet us, to transform us, and to build all of us up together in him. Let's strive to seek this from and do this for each other in 2023. Church, in conclusion, we need to see Jesus more clearly in 2023. And by God's grace, We will. Let's pray.